Well, good morning to everyone. Um, so Jason, as you guys know, had surgery. Um, and so he needs time to recover. So he asked me if I would come and bring the word this morning. And uh, so here we are. Obviously, I didn't say no. Um, so uh, if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to John uh, chapter 19. And we're going to read verse 17 through 30. Now, just kind of a common theme that I'm probably going to use throughout today is the question of what does the cross mean to you? Or maybe the better question is what should the cross mean to you? You know, we hear so much of the gospel in passing sometimes, whether that's uh, with your family at home or we'll mention it here in service and talk about the heart of the gospel. But I really want to take a deep look on what the gospel really is. And what should it mean to us? So many times we see the pictures of the cross painted on bumper stickers, necklaces, and tattoos that people get. And a lot of times they're shallow and they don't really have meaning. And the world has made it to where it almost doesn't have a meaning, right? We just see it everywhere and it's like no big deal, right? It's a cross. Okay, that's, that's kind of cool, you know? But the question really is, is do we know the significance of the cross and are we representing the thing that we maybe wear on a necklace or have on our car, on a bumper sticker or a tattoo that we have? Do we represent that well and do we represent the cross or Jesus in our daily lives? Because misrepresentation of the word of God or the gospel is breaking one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. We throw this three-letter word out a lot of times and... It's like, oh, don't take the Lord's name in vain, but there's a lot more to it than that. Misrepresentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a direct violation of one of the Ten Commandments, and there is your ticket to hell, right? So this morning, I want to take our short time together to gain a more full understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to self-evaluate on whether or not it has any significance to you reminder and like checking in on yourself asking do we represent Christ well in every aspect of life so let's go ahead and read our text John 19 starting in verse 17 and he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of the skull which is called in Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified him and two others with him one on either side and Jesus in the center now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified him, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier, soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from, top, from the top in one place, in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, and this, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, 
They divided my garment among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross Jesus, the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when they had received, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowing his head, gave up the spirit. So I think it's important before we actually start dealing with the text to understand the background of the setting of this book and kind of where we are throughout John. Um, so at this time, they have uh, captured Jesus, um, and they have taken him and put him on several different trials. And then just in the chapter before, uh, or even the verses before in the same chapter, they take him to Pilate, and he's putting him on trial, and he's asking him all these questions. And it goes on for a really long time because Pilate's sitting there is like, dude, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this guy. I cannot find any fault in him. And yet the people still cried out, crucify him, crucify him, because they hated him that much. And Pilate, like, he's like, tries to bargain with them. He's like, I'll give you this, this murderer back. And like, somebody who's even not a good person, it's like, he's willing to do that because he finds absolutely no fault in Jesus, right? And still, the people want him dead. And Pilate's like, Okay, this, there's this mob of people, right? If Pilate doesn't listen to this people, bad things for Pilate, right? So he gives in, but one thing that he does is he washes his hands clean of this, or in other words, saying that he's got nothing to do with this. It's like, I'm out of this, right? Because, like, he was one of the only ones, well, maybe not the only ones, but one that found no fault in him. So we pick up. As Jesus is on his way to death, right? He's on his way to die, and the means of his death was crucifixion. Now, crucifixion, uh, many of you probably know, it's a big cross. And they took him to the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew called Golgotha. And it was this, this just hill right next to the city. It was right nearby. And so the cruci- what crucifixion is, is that it's this cross, and they... They nail your hands and your feet, so it's probably somewhere in here, not really through your hands because then it would tear right through, right? But in your wrist, in between those two big bones, and then through your ankles. This is, like, extremely painful, right? These nails aren't just little nails, trim nails, holding this pulpit together, right? I mean, these are, like, six-inch railroad stakes going through your ankle and your hands. I mean, these things are huge, and not only is it painful just from nails going through your hands in your feet but when you're when you're hanging on a cross you're kind of slumped over and it starts to cut off uh your respiratory system and eventually what kills you is that your or the oxygen is not getting to your brain so your brain just completely shuts off and then eventually you die it's a long process though it takes time to get there and uh the romans were really good at torturing people i don't know if they can find pride in that but 
they were pretty good at it. Um, but this is just one of the worst ways to go out, and it's very painful. And for everybody, it's kind of a mockery. Like, it's right near the city where everybody can see, and it's just like you're hanging there for hours, kind of helpless, and it's like putting you on display for all to see. But knowing this, that he's about to do, knowing what he's about to endure, and knowing that he has all the power to stop anything that's ever going to happen, he still doesn't do anything, right? He willingly goes to death because he understands the bigger picture of salvation that has to happen, right? He came to do the will of his Father who sent him, right? I think that's pretty important because if any of us were put in that same situation where somebody's telling us we have to die for these people and, like, you have to willingly let them capture you even though you know you have the power to stop it, if I'm put in that situation, I'm out. Like, no shot, right? So he willingly goes to the cross, and we'll see the bigger picture of why here in a second. But if we look at verse 19, I think this is pretty cool. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now this is interesting, right? So he puts this sign up, and it says, Jesus, king of Nazareth, or Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, right? It's almost like a declarative sentence, like this really is the king of the Jews, right? And most people see that, or the chief priests see that, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, right? They're like, right, he said, I am the king of the Jews, right? They want to put the blame on him because they really don't believe that he's the king of the Jews. But I'm wondering, and my, what I found is... I believe that Jesus was, or God was working on Pilate's heart because he tried him for so long and found absolutely no fault of him. And then he wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And I'm, I'm thinking that God was working on Pilate's heart and he really does believe that this is the King of, Jews, King of the Jews, right? I just think that that distinction is, is uh, different. And it's not like... Pilate's stupid or lazy, right? He didn't just write whatever he wrote. He, he kind of wrote that with intention because it's right next to the city. Everybody can see it, and he wrote it in three different languages so all the people would understand that this is Jesus, King of, or King of the Jews. And then as Jesus is suffering on the, this cross, the soldiers are casting lots for his clothing, not really a care in the world for who Jesus is, or that this person is dying, all they're worried about is, what do I get out of it, right? So it's like, after all my dirty work's done, what do I, what do I gain from this, right? And so they split up the four pieces of clothing, and they get to this, um, I forget what it's called, what they called it here, let's see. Uh, and then his tunic. When they got to his tunic, they understood that it was 
kind of a, a nicer piece of clothing and it was all one, it was sewn in one seam, right? Or woven in one seam. And so they're like, let's not rip this apart, destroy this terrible thing, but let's cast lots for it. And then it says, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, the scripture, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, this is like a direct um, quotation from Psalm 22. So if you guys want to go ahead and turn to Psalm 22. If you guys ever do have time to read this, it's actually a really interesting psalm. I didn't realize it. I just kind of had glanced over where it referenced to, but then I read the whole psalm, and I was like, this is pretty cool. Um, But this is the fulfillment of Scripture that comes from Psalm 22. And let's go ahead and start reading in verse 15. My strength is dried up like a posthead, and my tongue clings to my jaws, And you have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I I can count all my bones. And they, they look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. So throughout this psalm... He's kind of using all, David, this is kind of a, the, if you read the little title they put above every psalm, it says the suffering praise and posterity of the Messiah. So this is obviously a psalm of suffering, right? David is going through some, some rough things throughout his life, and what does David do? He writes about them, right? And so he's using all of these beautiful metaphors and things that sound really good uh, throughout this whole psalm. And then we get to where we read verse 15 through 18, and we're like, that sounds just like the crucifixion, right? Even though he's never seen the crucifixion. David's never seen crucifixion. He wouldn't know that it's custom for the people that hung the, the criminals and all that on the cross. He didn't know that that was custom for them to divide all of the, uh, all of the garments and the things like that. So it's obviously a thing of God. This is the inspired word of God, right? And I think it's just super interesting that it it ties to this, but even uh, in verses like 15, 16, and 17, like 16, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. So there's all these wicked people around him saying, crucify him, crucify him, and then those that crucify him are there and everybody can see it and it's just this kind of wicked atmosphere but all of this lines up and it sounds just like the crucifixion right which is pretty cool in my opinion i didn't even realize that until just now you learn something new every day right and david is somewhat of a picture and gives us foreshadowing to this moment in time right um Let's go ahead and hop back over to John. And read a little bit further. Let's start in verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas, 
and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. I think this is really interesting because even in the darkest moment, Jesus, in Jesus' darkest moment where he's literally dying on the cross, he looks and sees his mom and is like, that person needs taken care of. The one who is literally dying is thinking of somebody besides himself. Jesus is on the verge of dying, and yet he still makes plans of who's going to care for his mother. Jesus is willingly dying for somebody else, and if we were put in the same spot, we I mean, I wouldn't think about anybody but myself, right? But we're not Jesus, thankfully. And Jesus cares and has compassion on his mother, and he is just representing good, kind atmosphere. If Jesus can go through so much pain and so much agony, then how much more is it for us to respect our employees, to respect our coworkers, and to be nice to everybody? Are we really representing Christ in our actions, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's at school, whether that's here at church? Like, if Jesus can care for his mom while he's dying... Is it really that hard for us to respect those around us and represent Christ well? If we were put in that same situation, would we react the same? It's kind of interesting. Most of us are supposed to take care of our parents when they get older and aren't doing well. But it's the other way around in this situation where the one dying is taking care of his healthy mother. Jesus went to the cross for people who hated him, right? And they tortured him and tormented him and mocked him. Like, people that would say, oh, if you really are the king of the Jews, get yourself down, right? But they didn't understand the bigger picture salvation. But if we think about death for a minute, there's not a lot of people that really want death right now, right? I highly doubt it. But would we willingly die for somebody we hated or that hated us or would we die for our worst enemy most of us probably not but that's what Jesus did I want to look at another account of the gospel and of the account of the crucifixion so let's flip over to Luke chapter 23 Starting in verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. 
in Luke's account, we see a little bit of a difference in some of the details that he notices. Luke um, points out in that first verse that we read that the sky goes dark, completely dark for three hours. Now, this is like the middle of the day, so like noontime, right? And then all of a sudden, just like that, it's completely dark. I don't think there's any light switches outside. You can't usually just turn the light off whenever you want, right? This is not, not normal or natural at all, right? It's only the work of a supernatural power that could just turn day to darkness, right? That, that just doesn't ever happen, right? And with all this speculation of, is Jesus the king of the Jews? Is he not? And this debate between Pilate and the Pharisees, like, can any other human really just turn the light out outside? Probably not. There's a lot of power in the death of the crucifixion of Jesus, right? It definitely wasn't those two sinners that were hanging next to him, right? And it tears the veil of the temple. Now, the veil of the temple is what separated the holies of holies from just the rest of the temple. And this is a massive, massive curtain. It's like 60 feet tall, four inches thick, and took like 300 people to get up, right? That doesn't just tear, right? And it tore from the top to the bottom. Like, I don't know if anybody here is really 60 feet tall. I mean, Jerry's pretty tall, but I don't think he's getting to 60 feet, right? I mean, there's no human possible answer for why these events happen the way they happened, right? No one can just turn day to darkness. No one can tear this massive curtain. The Holies of Holies was a place where God, quote-unquote, dwelt. Like, obviously, we know from Scripture that God is omnipresent, and he can be anywhere at any time. And so he never really dwells there, but it's symbolic of where God dwelt. And the Holies of Holies was a place that only one person one time a year could go in. The high priest would go in there on the Day of Atonement and make blood sacrifices. But uh, this, this tearing of the, the, the veil of the temple was symbolic that Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice. And now we can have access to the Father through the shed blood of Jesus, right? Both these events point straight to Jesus, right? Those people around that would see this be like, only this could be the work of somebody who has great power, right? And those following Jesus saw some of his miracles, and this is like the icing on the cake, right? It's like nobody makes the middle of the day turn dark, right? And it stayed that way for like three hours, right? But it impacts people. Later in verse 47, we see that a centurion that may or may not have even put Jesus to death that day, after these events, says, certainly this was a righteous man. Somebody who probably was standing there, either put Jesus up or watched his buddies put Jesus up on the cross and is now dying, sees darkness and the veil of the temple rent, 
and then it just leads straight to certainly this was a righteous man, right? The death of Jesus was one piece in making the way for salvation. The resurrection was the final step, defeating death because the wages of sin is death, right? But Jesus conquered death through the resurrection. But he had to die to take on our sins onto himself in order for us to have new life through him. We all deserve death, yet he died so our sins can be forgiven. It's not that Jesus loved us so much that he had to die, because Jesus hates sin, right? And if it wasn't for sin, he wouldn't have to do this, right? But he cares for us, right? He's not just going to leave us hopeless without a future. And so that's why he came, so that we could have life through him, because we couldn't live the perfect life that he lived. And we couldn't take sin onto ourselves, and we couldn't conquer death so that we might have a second chance. We could not do it ourselves, so there had to be an ultimate sacrifice. It's like in the Old Testament, how they atoned and paid for their sin was they went to the temple or the tabernacle and they made sacrifices to atone for their sin, but now that is no longer needed because Jesus was that ultimate sacrifice and he took on the sin of each and every individual that has lived, is living now, or will ever live, Right? The work is all finished. He even says that in John 19 when he says he cried out with a loud voice saying, It is finished. It was the fulfillment of scripture that we read about in Psalm 22. You know, we have all of this information at our fingertips every single day. Most people in here have a smartphone, right? We have access to the Bible like never before. We have resources and commentaries we can look at and just opinions from different people. We have all of these resources available at our fingertips, but what do we do with it? Most of the time we don't even look at it, right? That goes for me too. We have all this information, but we never do with it. What does the cross mean to you? Or what should it mean? If someone was to die that we know right now, would we just brush that off and say, doesn't really matter to me, right? Whatever. And just go on living our lives like every normal human being? My guess is probably not. And if you did, you got some bigger problems. <laughs> Don't let the cross just be something that we see and has no meaning or something that we wear and has no meaning. I pray it means so much more to you than that because somebody really died on a cross that day and went through so much more agony and pain that we can ever imagine just so that we might have life through him. Don't let it be some this thing that the world puts out there and then just kind of doesn't mean anything anymore because it's used so frequently and so many that aren't even Christians and don't represent the gospel right.
still have a tattoo of a cross, but that doesn't mean anything to them. And then over time, when you see so many of those people, those, those people that don't know the gospel and don't know Jesus, it means absolutely nothing, and it's looked over. Right? Don't be one of those people that just uses the cross with no significance, and don't live your life as if the cross has no significance to you, right? Representing the gospel and the work that was done that day and even the work leading up to that, right? Jesus tied a couple loose ends right there at the end that fulfilled scripture, right? All of this work leading up, healing people. He says, I did not come to save that which is healthy or to heal that which is healthy, but that which is lost. Right? So you know, those of you that are, don't know Jesus and are not saved today, will you ignore this free gift and say that the very death of Jesus means nothing, or will you run to him in repentance? And to those of you that are saved, what does the cross mean to you, and are you representing the cross of Jesus Christ in your everyday life, here at church, here at work, here at home, in the family? Are you representing the cross and the work of Jesus Christ the way that Jesus would? One of the old hymns that we sing, it's one of my favorites. And I think the words are very applicable to my life and to others' lives, right? Jesus paid it all, so all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain but he washed it white as snow, right? He made the ultimate sacrifice, but so many times we're so lazy, including myself, and we do absolutely nothing, and we don't even think, are we representing the gospel well? Do we represent Christ? Our life should be a picture of Jesus Christ, not one that leads others away from Christ, right? that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. If we never do anything that represents Christ, no one will ever see Christ. And then you have a lost and dying world with all the hope in the world, but no one there to live it out. You know, there was this man, his name was Inky Johnson, and he had one of the best high school football careers, and he was going to be... Uh, going to college and then he was projected top 30 draft pick and then he got a paralyzed right arm and hand never could play football again but one of his famous quotes that I really like is sometimes people don't need you to preach a sermon they need you to live one right so we have to be a representation of Jesus Christ each and every day when we walk out of the door when we walk out of this building don't just hear it in one ear and let it go out the other but be the representation that God wants us to be and that God calls us to be. And it's not an option. That's a command, right? So I hope we can all learn something from this. And I know I learned so much yesterday while I was prepping this. I didn't know the thing about Psalm 22 and all that. But 
hopefully all of us can learn something from this and take it and be a better representation of Christ, not for our own glory, but for his glory and for the furtherance of his kingdom.